Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Khashki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. This is John Leeson, and I play Kate Nine on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels, and that is compulsory. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the leisurely task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. You know I've been sitting on that one for a while. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally leisurely four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. We also welcome back our semi-novice fan, one who's seen a little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Welcome back, Allison. Hello, like the doctor, I don't look a day over a thousand. <laughs> Good to know. And finally, we welcome back our special guest, Jennifer Picker. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. I know it was a bit of a surprise for you to be on this one because I tracked down our conversation. And yes, you did agree to Warriors Gate. So we're still going to do Warriors Gate with you, but I'm glad you're able to join us for this one. So thank you very much for being part of this. I'll throw you this one. We had discussed previously, you might invite me at a, a drop of a dime. So I thought that was one of them. Good to know. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you've bombed another planet down to the dust just to have room to store them all, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. I really had to work hard at that one. <laughs> and as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Vanglesdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sonnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, and Joseph Middleton-Welling. Thank you all. Thank you. 
Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. You may have noticed we have new opening music and new artwork on our Facebook page and in our signage because we're starting a new season of the podcast with this episode at the same time as the series itself is entering a new era. It's Tom Baker's final season, but the moment has been prepared for as we discuss David Fisher's novelization of his script for The Leisure Hive. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Leisure Hive, adapted by David Fisher from a script that aired from 83080 to 92080, published by Target Books in July 1982. As of this recording in August of 2022, this title is in print and available as an unabridged audiobook, 118 pages. Before we go any further with the history on this particular story, just wanted to clear up something from last time. Trey Corte listened to our podcast and informed me that the unabridged audiobook that's available for this book is not one of the new ones. So David Fisher did not write a completely brand new audiobook, even though the audiobook for this one was released not long after those other two. So this is not new. The audiobook that was released is actually the text from the 1982 novelization. There is so much to say about this because it really is the start of a new era. It's generally referred to as the JNT era, and it will last all the way until the classic series finally ends in 1989. The late John Nathan Turner, hence JNT, who had been working on the show off and on ever since the Space Pirates in the Troughton years, was production unit manager under former producer Graham Williams, and Williams suggested him as producer at the age of 33. Because he was so young and considered inexperienced, the BBC asked former producer Barry Letts to come back in an advisory role as executive producer for his first season, but Letts didn't ultimately have that much input on the day-to-day of the show. JNT and his new script editor, Christopher H. Bidmead, would be the ones who decided the new direction for the show heading into the 1980s, for better and for worse. As we move forward, we will have plenty to say about the worse, if not always about the better. There are several good things about the Leisure Hive and the stories that follow, and yes, it is Leisure Hive. I think that's the British pronunciation, though I've heard British people say leisure, but Leisure Hive is the way they pronounce it always. The resident Brit here corrected me to Leisure Hive. (laughs) It is Leisure Hive. Okay. For one thing, there's more of a willingness to experiment with special effects, and while some of them haven't aged all that well, they're state-of-the-art for the time period. Another decision is to change the music from Dudley Simpson's instrumental score to an entirely electronic one, which means the shows both look and sound entirely different from the way they did before. These changes extend to the opening theme, which is given an entirely new electronic arrangement by Peter Howell to go with a new set of opening titles and a new logo, generally referred to as the Neon Tube logo because that's essentially what it is. It's a Neon Tube. Mm -hmm. These changes were not universally liked, as it turns out, least of all by Tom Baker and Lala Ward. The series' leads were also unhappy with JNT's decision to greatly cut down on what he saw as the silliness in the show by stripping as much of the comedy out of it as possible. 
if you've seen the show, you'll know that David Fisher has put some of that comedy back in to the novelization. And even Bidmead agreed with them about the changes to Tom Baker's costume, which included replacing the coat and scarf with a scarlet version, which wasn't bad, and putting question marks on the shirt lapels, which was bad. Oh, God. Yes. I just assume that after this story, the scarf was in in, in the Doctor Who universe in an evidence locker somewhere, <laughs> after it was used in a murder, because he had moiter. <laughs> well, it would be lovely to think so, wouldn't it? But no. No, it's the scarlet scarf, and you actually see his old outfit hanging on the coat rack behind the console in a later story, so it's still around, but he just doesn't wear it anymore for some God only knows reason. JNT's ideas on costuming would later extend to the companions as well, who would by and large wear the same outfits in every story. And we'll get to how that affects the Doctor's costume in his next three incarnations soon enough, because those question marks ain't going anywhere. Mm-mm. Nope. David Fisher was also not a fan of the diminished comedy content, as the Leisure Hive was meant to be both a commentary on the diminished British tourist industry, I don't know why, and a spoof of gangster stories. The name Fomasi is in fact an anagram of mafioso. (laughs) They were meant to be mafioso. Yep. Needless to say, those spoof elements were not included in the televised version, but several of them do make their way back into the novelization. Like the whole thing about assassinations and such, yeah. Despite these changes, the televised version does look incredibly good. The director ended up going way over budget, but the money at least shows up on screen, both in the staging of shots and the set design. The Argolin themselves are also impressive, though the effect of the little jewels dropping off their heads as they're dying is a bit odd. Don't get me started on the Famasi costumes. It's one of those weird cases where they're actually more impressive when they're shot in close-up than they are from afar. Mm, okay. It's kind of like the movie Alien. When you see the alien in close-up, it's terrifying. When you see it from a distance, it's not nearly as scary. It's like seeing the detail is great, but when you back up, it's like, oh, that's just a man in a suit. <laughs> yes, and the Fumasi look like they're very cute. They shouldn't be very cute. There's also an impressive cast. You've got Lawrence Payne, who'd previously been in The Gunfighters as Morix, and well-known Scottish actress Adrienne Corey as Bina. In addition to her many roles in horror movies, she's best known as the ill-fated wife of the writer who's attacked by the Droogs in Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. That is Bina. Actor and playwright David Haig, who would eventually appear in the Peter Capaldi series The Thick of It, played Pangle. So, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Jennifer, do you have a copy of the back cover available to you? I do, yes. The Leisure Hive of the planet Argolis is an entertainment center for galactic travelers. At the heart of the hive is the Tachyon Recreation Generator, a machine with the most extraordinary performance capability and vital to the continued existence of the Argolin after the devastating war with the reptilian Fomasi. While visiting the hive, the Doctor and Romana are sucked into a whirlpool of treachery and deceit and are eventually arrested on suspicion of murder. Which isn't nearly as entertaining a back cover as we have been getting on those rewrites. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because someone was really in love with alliteration on those last two covers, but not so much on this one. 
Which is fine. Jennifer, what was your first impression of the story when you first encountered it, whenever you encountered it? Oh my goodness. The very first time would have been in the very early 80s. I don't know if how many times, maybe two, three times between the 80s and those past couple handful of weeks I've ever seen it. As a child, I kind of liked it, but I said over dinner tonight that my most fond memory, and some people will know what I look like, some of you don't, was the first time anyone ever compared me to looking like Lala Ward. And uh, so, I mean, obviously I was much younger then. Uh, so. so is she. <laughs> I think I, I particularly like, I love drapes and draping the costumes and flourishing. I think I remember loving the costuming best. I don't know so much about the changes, but what they actually were. I had watched an interview with June Hudson about this episode, and her, she and Tom and Lala talked, and Tom was somewhat apprehensive or whatever, but uh, apparently one of her favorite comments from him to her was, I'll trust you with whatever you give me. And with that, she proceeded to explain that she made those question marks as discreet as possible. <laughs> yeah, they are definitely more subdued than they would later be because later on, especially with Peter Davison's costume and definitely with Sylvester McCoy's costume, they will explode. <laughs> they will reproduce like rabbits. It's ridiculous. And do we have room for one more other change related to this era? Sure. Originally, Doctor Who Weekly was being produced and then it slowly grew with John Nathan Turner coming in and fresh new minds and stuff coming in, it eventually evolved to Doctor Who Monthly, and it evolved more away from being a comic book to being more of a commentary from on the series. And this episode was the first episode ever addressed in Doctor Who Monthly. Mm, okay, that, that actually makes sense, come to think of it. Bringing some Larry levels of scholarliness in. <laughs> yes, precisely. I, I mean, that's all praise. Yeah, definitely. Allison, what was your first impression when you were sent this book? I remind you that my value is in my ignorance uh, <laughs> of the story. So, so, so I, I was not familiar with the story at all. The first thing I did was, and I'm sorry that I've brought this up many times before with other stories, is I googled, all right, when did Hitchhiker's Guy come out and when did Discworld start coming out based on the style? I'm like, okay, right between the two. So actually before Discworld surprised me a little bit. So I find this a very entertaining style. At first I thought it was a little kind of preening and self-conscious, but it was funny enough I enjoyed it and then it calmed down. Mm, okay. I definitely loved the introduction. Oh, yeah. Was... I, I enjoyed it right away. I thought it was it needed to get over itself a little bit, and then it did indeed get over itself a little bit. <laughs> From some of the things you said in the beginning, I'm afraid I'm supposed to hate it, by actually, but I no. actually thought this was a lot of fun. Oh, goodness, no. No, okay. I never meant to imply that at all. It's just that David Fisher kind of has a 50-50 record with his novelizations. We've read four of them now. This is the fourth one of his that we've read, and it's like two for two. We've had two really good ones and two that we just didn't care as much for. I'm not sure if have I read any of them. I don't think you did. I think this is the very first one that you've actually read. I can suggest going back and reading one of them, but not so much the other two. <laughs> Which one do you recommend? <laughs> oh, Stones of, Stones of Blood. Stones of Blood is marvelous. Yeah. Absolutely marvelous. But Androids of Tara, not so much. So Dalton and Tony, what, what is it that you like so much about two of them and dislike so much about the other two? Um, Dalton, I'm going to let you start first because then you can segue into your first impressions of this book. It's actually funny, Allison, you brought up, you know, looking to see 
when Hitchhiker's Guide and Discworld came out compared to the writing, because what was really off-putting about one of the books was that David Fisher was trying his best to outdo Hitchhiker's Guide. Well, and when you do a lot of comedy about space politics, you're kind of inviting the, the comparison. Yeah, so it was just like way too much of it, and it didn't really fit kind of with the tone of the story in a way, and it just was, it was too much. It was just too much of it. This story, though, has it, but it feels like it's reeled in, it feels like it's tempered, and even when there are bits of it, instead of crazy long passages that go to nowhere, anything that is kind of like just short little sentences that are zingers or weird little quirky things that you want to hear about, but there's not, it's not like overly done in any way. So that's why I think that, yeah, this one I'm kind of leaning more towards liking compared to Androids of Tara. What was the other one he did? Was Creature um, from the Pit. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That one has the same style as this, but isn't nearly as successful. Yeah, definitely not. So yeah, whenever, whenever I first got this one, I immediately thought about the Honeybee Inn from Final Fantasy VII, which, well, just the name, the Leisure Hive, and then the Honeybee Inn is a um, whorehouse. So So that's what I thought of, but then immediately, like, upon reading, I was like, no, this is, this is, of course, being Doctor Who, it's, it's more tame, and it's really more, like, I don't know if an amusement park is quite the right word, but it's more a resort, I guess. But yeah, so that was kind of my my initial thought. And then, yeah, having just come off reading the two newer David Fisher novels, again, Stones of Blood, which we really liked, and Androids of Tara, which we didn't like as much, but was an improvement upon Terrence Dick's version. Yeah, I was looking forward to this David Fisher novelization, and I I think it was pretty successful overall. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought this up about bees, (laughs) because... (laughs) If you look at, I think it's Pangle who's on the cover. If you look at the Argolan design, it's obvious that there's something bee-like that's suggested because they've got this honeycomb on their head. And that's where the little jewels come popping off their heads with this little tink sound when they're dying. That Yeah, that's probably a bit of it too, is seeing the cover and his kind of black and yellow color scheme again is like that yeah made me think plus the word hive yeah being watching that interview with miss hudson originally these characters were supposed to be very plant-like and Mm. they evolved that i can also see where they've evolved it plant to match the hive idea as well but that was a comment that was in the uh, june hudson interview that i i read that's interesting because those little jewels popping off their heads then is more like a plant budding but in reverse which is interesting. It's not so much reproduction, it's more a sign of death. Or it's fruit falling off a stem. Oh, that's a thought too. Though I wouldn't want to eat those. No. <laughs> in preparation for this, a friend had come in and he's like, they kind of look like a, a bunch of vegetables flopping around. And I said, actually, that's, and I made the June Hudson comment then. And he's like, what does it look like when they actually die? And I said, they kind of look like prunes. well you want them you want them to desiccate and and dry and concentrate sweetness instead of rot (laughs) and very fast if if you can manage it hey that could be a new export he was making some very complimentary comments of actress adrian uh not adrian adrian Corey. yeah thank you adrian Corey. thank you yeah she's amazing 
she is just absolutely amazing, especially since you see her at three different ages in the course of the story, because you've got the very strong middle-aged woman at the very beginning, you've got the elderly dying woman towards the middle, and at the very end you have a much younger revitalized version of her, and it's it's just great. Maiden Mother Crone. Yep, but we're not talking about the televised story. We're talking about <laughs> the book. So let's talk about first what we found to be good about this novelization. I love the miserable Brighton vacation at the beginning. <laughs> yes. I, I, I am so easy to suck in with a with an amusing prologue. I learned a new word. I don't know how it's said, but haporth? Haporth? What is it? H-A apostrophe P-O-R-T-H. At first I'm like, is it Hebrew transliteration? Anyone with a haporth of sense, I know I'm saying it wrong, was sure to be in the cinemas or the pubs or the amusement arcades. And I googled it and found this was a contraction for half penny worth. Oh, hey, so Porth. aren't I the smarty pants? Hey, Porth, yes. Hey, Porth, is I that how you say it? Okay. Yes, hey, Porth, like, uh, hey, penny. Hey, penny, hey, Porth. I remember seeing that, but I think I'd seen the word before, so it didn't really register with me. I, I It reminded me of a, a ill-fated Great Lakes vacation. Oh, we're going to go to the beach. It's going to be great. It's shivering. I'm shivering. It's sleeting. <laughs> I'm wrapped in a binky. This chair is hard. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very odd opening with the televised version because you get this long tracking shot of the beach and you end up with the doctor on his chair. And these two new characters do not exist in that beginning at all. And it Hmm. needed it. Oh, God, did it ever That 90-second pan needed that narration. I've been, like, trying to imagine a million different ways how they could have, like, put that in the film because that narration, or that part is very useful. Yeah, it is. That's what made this country great, he thought, nostalgically, a steadfast refusal to be deterred by facts. You come to the seaside for the day, and regardless of whether there's six feet of snow along the prom, and icebergs are floating down from Hove, regardless of the fact that you're cold, miserable, and your boots are beginning to let in water, you come and sit on the beach, even if it kills you. And with this wind, it probably will. More, it's more of a Lake Superior than a Lake Michigan vacation, I guess. Yeah, it really is. I was just thinking that same thing. And that's Fisher putting the the, the humor back in, because there is humor in that opening, but it's wildly subdued compared to this. Does Romana demand a better vacation? Oh, God, yeah. We don't get the joke about 20th century history being too violent to recreate, though. No, I love that. And it's also a bit harsher in hindsight, if you think about it, because it's like, well, who could have known that the 21st century was just around the corner and it would be more violent in the first two decades than in several of the ones before? Yeah, God. I'm glad we got to lose the Japanese candy floss joke. Um, <laughs> no, I... we didn't lose it. It's in there. <laughs> no, in the, in the show. Oh, We don't get it in the show. Yeah. We also don't get free school milk being blamed for hooliganism. Although I thought that was plainly making fun of that explanation. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to American conservatives blaming gun violence in schools on free school milk. It's where it's going. And I'm not even joking with that. Well, that too. It's going to happen. You know it is. But yeah, it's a marvelous opening. It's just really, really great. You notice, though, there's no description of the new costume at all. I had no idea that there was anything interesting about, quite frankly, any of these costumes. That's why I thought your thing, Jennifer, was so interesting, because I didn't actually visualize much of interest. 
Yeah, the Doctor, this is the first time he's appearing in the Scarlet version of his costume. And it's kind of a big thing. Everything looks very different, including that tracking shot, because they hadn't really done anything like that tracking shot before. I was just going to say, I did particularly like, in this like little dialogue beforehand, the jokes about K-9. With being a dachshund or a terrier. <laughs> yes. He seems to have this idea that K-9 is a different size than K-9 actually is. Because he described K-9 as... Did he describe him as a uh, terrier size? A metal, a metal fox terrier. Or yeah. some new breed. Who knows, uh, compared to a miniature dachshund, who knows what, you could kinda, what kind of dog you'll get or something along those lines. He did that in Androids of Tara, though, didn't he, Dalton? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I specifically remember him saying that it was about uh, the size of a terrier, and I was like, really? Something hmm. else, before we get too much further, I noticed a lot of typographical errors in this book. Mm. I, I started counting them, and I started putting the page numbers. There are a lot of typos in this book. In the physical copy, you mean? Yes, the book. Um, yeah, yes. Okay. Because we were all looking at the PDF, and oh, it's gotten to the point where we, yeah, we immediately assume that if there's a typo, it's a problem with the OCR, but it sounds like it's in the print version. I have the print version, but I rarely read the print versions anymore, which is just pathetic, really. <laughs> you have to wonder why I keep them around. I wonder what happened there. I really have to wonder, because... Obviously, if you've got a planet named XXBRMM, <laughs> you've got an editor who says, oh, well, that's intentional. Maybe the rest of this was intentional. Yeah. That's crazy, though. I, I did not know that those misprints were in there. It, it's rare to have those in Target books, but when they do happen, they are stunning, generally. Right, like even on page five, I had made a note that uh, they have a bucket. You would usually think he was describing the setup with the TARDIS and the chair and Tom Baker's doctor asleep. And it says a bucket and, and space next to him. Wouldn't it be <laughs> a bucket and spade? It would be. <laughs> and, and even page six, it was supposed to be invitation and it's supposed to be an invitation. And I just started logging all of the typos. Uh, I won't continue to comment on them, but within two pages, there were two <laughs> significant ones. Now, see, now I have to look and see if it actually is in the PDF that I have, because I, I don't know if uh, Dalton or Allison noticed them. I noticed a couple of things, but yeah, at this point, I just, like you said, I kind of just put it up as the OCR is just off. Sorry, I was trying to, I keep forgetting, I actually did the trial version of Adobe at one point, and now every time I try to open a PDF, it says, oh, you need to pay for this again, and then it closes it on me when I don't. Uh, why is Adobe a worse product than it was when I started using it in 1996? I have no idea. You can edit no that idea. out, but please don't. I want them to feel my contempt. I will leave it in, because I feel exactly the same way. It is ridiculous. Bucket and space. Bucket. Oh, it is there! Oh my gosh, it's there! <laughs> Oh my gosh. You know what it was? Knowing that I was going to be starting to teach six classes this semester in composition, I was probably more than willing to let things slide by. <laughs> Take a day was... off from copy editing. Exactly. And the rest of the writing just kind of bears you along like you're on a cloud because Fisher is just so good in this book. I cannot get over how good Fisher is in this book. 
another real quick thing I'd like to add in the what the overall book is supposed to be, with it being 40 years after the Formasi War, I had read somewhere that this was supposed to be, and this is literally taking 40 years after the end of World War II was when it was broadcast. So mm. this was supposed to be a comparison to basically Germany putting itself back together after World War II. Hmm. Oh. I didn't catch that at all about the timeline. Interesting. That is interesting because you can kind of see it, can't you? You can see, in fact, it makes sense with the legend of Theron and how he leads them to their destruction. Yeah, it honestly does. And, oh God, the parallels are just falling into place. Well, in Pango, the neo-Nazi youth actually at one point made, it seemed to be making direct reference to Hitler's campaign slogan, uh, Hindenburg is a great man whose time has passed. Yes. He makes a speech almost exactly like that about Mina. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the Famasi, if they are the allies, specifically the United States, coming in to essentially occupy the country after they've taken it over and willing to try to buy out parts of it. Ooh, yeah, the parallel almost works there, too. It, now, that is interesting. But that neo-Nazi comment was in whatever I was reading. Hmm. Though it doesn't seem to be as much in the novelization, because chapter two, and I have to say, I love all of chapter two, all that background on the Argolan and the Famasi. We don't get any of that on screen. We get it piecemeal, but everything's described in such perfect detail, even to the point of making it funny, that the first Argolan came up with the first axe and immediately hit another Argolan over the head with it. <laughs> yes. And that's all you need to know about them. Uh, There's Douglas Adam competition there, in my opinion. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, totally. Yeah, and the saga of Harold the Hapless and Mako the Mighty lopping off their limbs until they both die of blood loss <laughs> because they want it to be an equal fight. Yes. Monty Python. Yes. Now stand aside, worthy adversary. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. Well, what's that then? I've heard worse. You liar! Come on, you pansy! Yes, and it's all great, and it all works, and it's really a shame that there's really no way to include it in the televised version, because the televised version takes itself so incredibly seriously. And I was worried, that's the second chapter of the book, and we've already had a throwaway chapter with setting up that the Doctor and Romana are looking for somewhere to have vacation, and then we have the second chapter, which is literally just backstory, which even from reading that, I'm like, that was not on screen, that was not included. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, they, they didn't have anything this violent on screen, I don't think. No. Yeah, so two chapters in, I was already worried this book was going to become one of those that's just like padded out or super truncated and we don't really get a feel for any of the characters or the plot because he's having to look to a page count and really like make it all fit. But even with that chapter in there, I still feel like the rest of the book is, it's very full. And we get a lot of what is probably on screen and it doesn't feel bad in a way that some of the other novelizations we have read have felt, you know, Yeah. where, where yeah. they feel rushed or they feel like very plain. Mm -hmm. And we get some well-rounded characters as a result as well. Mina is just a great character 
and her relationship with Harden, which is kind of hinted at on screen through some of the dialogue, it's much more solidly given evidence for in this version. You know that something happened between those two, and it actually kind of just makes the story, this idea that there is this forbidden love affair between the two of them. And it's introduced through that banter between the two journalists in Chapter 3, and you do not get that on screen. Nothing like that happens on screen. I'm not sure, Jennifer, if you've read the new adventures that were put out in the 90s, but that scene between the two journalists looking for a story and gossiping about Mina and Harden, I was thinking that it's the sort of scene that would not have been out of place in one of the new adventures from the 1990s. I thought I had made a note of it. I've, I've read most of them. The one I was going to cite was Torn Up by My Dog. <laughs> but Festival of Death. Yes. Comes between Shada and the Leisure Hive. Leisure Hive. Yep. <laughs> so, what, what kind of activities do they have at, at the Leisure Hive? Oh, you know, they have events. There's a Festival of Death. <laughs> <laughs> well, Festival of Death was one of the missing adventures of the Virgin Line, and it featured the Fourth Doctor and Romana. And it's one of the ones written by, oh, remind me who writes that one. Is it Jonathan Morris? Yes. Yes. Jonathan Morris is particularly good at capturing their relationship. It's one of those books that you read and you're like, oh my god, I wish this had actually been filmed. There are also a few others that are written by an author whose name we shall not speak on this program that are also really good, but I'm not willing to give him any credit. It's just, yeah. <laughs> it worked. I have no idea who you're talking about. Um, we, we, we've read him before, but that was before his transphobic comments. So, yeah. Fortunately, I missed all of this and I couldn't be happier. Yep. Yep. You didn't miss nothing. <laughs> what else did we like in this book? In this chapter, I, I will say with, with the comparisons to Douglas Adams and now they address competition with David Fisher, in this descriptive chapter two, I did, in my mind, keep hearing myself reading it in the Hitchhiker's Guide narrator's voice. Oh, yes. It has that feel to it, doesn't it? In fact, if you read the new version of Stones of Blood, his intro to that book and the chapter that he writes about the Ogre sound very much in that vein. And I think that's what Dalton and I appreciated about Stones of Blood, because it was definitely Douglas Adams-esque, but it was done correctly. Yeah. The resident Brit that I refer to, he asked me, where did Douglas and David read, or where did they study? And did they have the same professors or the same teachers? I never could find where David Fisher went to school. Douglas Adams went to St. John's, Cambridge, mm -hmm. but I could never find where David Fisher went to school. And if they had the same inspiration, if they had the same teachers, the same influence to have that style of writing or that competition. Now, that is interesting. We, we know about David Fisher's background, come to think of it. He did not go to university. I wondered that, if that's why I couldn't find where, where it was. That's All I could why. see is he got in trouble in school for smoking. Yeah. His son writes the intro to Stones of Blood. And in that intro, he refers to his father as David, which is kind of odd. But he also talks about the fact that David Fisher was an extremely erudite person. And part of the reason for that erudition is that he always envied people who had university degrees because he had not gone to university himself. Oh. 
that sounds vaguely familiar. So it's it's one of those situations that I have a feeling that it wasn't so much that they studied under the same teachers, but you can tell that Fisher has read Douglas Adams by the time he does these novelizations, mm -hmm. especially the later ones. It, it definitely has that feel. In fact, if you look at Creature from the Pit, it has all the earmarks of somebody who's trying to do Hitchhiker's Guide and just isn't really savvy with it yet. Haven't we all done this at some point? Yeah, we have. Those of us who have written... I would go so far as to say that if you're interested in science fiction and you're interested in writing something that has any comic elements, you're going to hit the Douglas Adams well pretty hard before you go on to other writers like Terry Pratchett, who has a very different style of humor. But Fisher's style has elements of that as well. Mm -hmm. Once again, they're all doing political space comedy. I mean, that's a very broad description. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there are other comedic science fiction writers that don't do it quite that same way, and it's got this very British flavor to it. I'm thinking of Piers Anthony specifically. Oh, I love the, Piers Anthony. Yeah, he's great, but he also does this, really, I'm thinking of his Ant series, he does this pun-based version of humor that gets very wearing after a while if you're not ready for it. In fact, I could never finish his Anth book, whereas his other works I can, because he does something very different with those. So, yeah, I'd say Fisher is extremely well-read, and he had to have read Douglas Adams at some point. There's just no way around it. I do, have, as of page 15, have a note that even though I'm very much a fan of Douglas Adams, that I did feel that David was a little over the top with it. Just like going from page 15 to 19, with all the humor and the funny quips and stuff, taking that much time to describe how the skies got to be that color. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the televised version... You don't it, get that at all. You don't get that at all. No. Ar Argolis does not look beautiful in any way. It's very much a special effect. Yeah, it's just like white, like two spotlights kind of fading in and out, swirling. It's not this beautiful rainbow of color and these metallics and silvers and glitters that are so beautifully described in the book. This is true. Yeah, exactly. What I thought of was the David Tennant episode, Midnight. Oh, um, yeah. Which I, I love Midnight. Yeah. A, a similar concept where you have this beautiful sight through the dome of, I think they, it's a very similar name, something like the Pleasure Palace or, or something like there, but it's... But what you're looking at would, is deadly if you expose your flesh to it. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if when they wrote Midnight, they were looking back at the Leisure Hive and thinking, okay, how would we do this now? What would something like this look like? And you definitely see it in that episode. I, th I think you're absolutely right in that. There's a few other comparisons to New Who. We've got the Slovene. Oh, well, we haven't even gotten to that yet. That, those are further notes than Oh, with the Famasi. Yeah. That's fine. We're jumping around on this. We're, we're not doing it chapter by chapter or else we'll be here all night. Yeah, the Famasi. On screen. <laughs> I'm kind of weary of lizard people. Yeah, and I'm weary of aliens that just kind of sort of fit in human-sized containers. Because it never quite works out. At least in the new series with the Slovene, you get 
the gas exchange because they're compressed, but then you get fart jokes as a result. And that's one of the excesses of New Who that I just, I don't like. And I am a huge fan of fart jokes. I was going to say, I don't think anyone here is too refined for a good no, fart abso- joke. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Ever since my baby was born, I've been watching YouTube videos of babies farting, and oh I feel God. closer to her, so. <laughs> I just imagine these these suits as, like, space bags. They're, vac- like, vacuum sealed. Just, like, <laughs> suck everything in to make it fit, you know? You'd have to, because the Fumasi are portly. <laughs> they really are. They're these kind of chubby and jolly green balls of scales. Mm-hmm. They don't look lizard-like at all. The suits of armor at the Art Institute are interesting because they are the size of modern people, which meant the people inside of them must have been tiny. Yes. Because the outside, the exterior, is the size we'd expect. So I, I guess I imagine them to be actually kind of petite lizard people. Oh, no, they're not petite. <laughs> they should not fit in the outfits that they do. That being said, when you see Clout's skin just hanging there, it's a particularly strong effect. It works really quite well. And the reveal of them is okay, but then you get the... Uh, <laughs> you get the you get those chubby green aliens popping out of human-sized people, and it's like, oh, how does that work exactly? Say, I did love the uh, the bit of misdirection we get because there's a part where I'm guessing where the the Fomasi intelligence officers breaking into the hive. Yes, that's made to make us think that those are the people that are coming in to, you know, sabotage it. Mm-hmm. So the fact that later we find out, no, that that Brock and the clout are the ones that are there actually doing the bad stuff. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. And believe it or not, that's a distinction that on screen you don't catch at all. Mm. Yeah. I was going to add that even though my mild complaint about those first few pages into, it describes much better in the book the Argolins and the Formasi and the argue and the, the war between them and how that evolved. Uh, we, do, we do get that reading the book, and we get very little of that in the episode. Yeah, the Famasi are just a faceless race, essentially, and you know that they're the ones that are doing something to the Hive, but the misdirection on screen is that all of those wonderful close-ups of the Famasi eyes and claws that you see are, as you say, Dalton, the intelligence services breaking into the Hive because they're trying to catch the criminals. Mm-hmm. When we see a lot of the story beats coming, but the the part where Brock's throat is ripped open to reveal the speech box, I, I didn't expect it. I didn't see that one coming. Yeah. <laughs> so d- we don't have on screen the idea that the entire surviving Fomasi society is like based on the Stanford prison experiment? <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't, actually. We don't actually know much at all about the Fomasi in the televised version. We just know that the West Lodge is a criminal group, and that's all we know. In fact, we don't even get all that expansion of them doing this kind of scam with other planets where they go in and they sabotage things and they say, see, see, your property is actually worth less, so we should be able to buy it for less than we do, and then not ending up paying for it. Well, the other thing I was going to add is nowhere, I mean, they get the West factor or whatever, 
but they never describe the political dysfunction between the Formasi or the bad Formasi. That none of that gets addressed in the show at all. We get a better look at that in the book. Yeah, yeah, all of it is expanded, which is just really, really quite good. For that matter, the Famasi that is standing in for Brock is given a lot more to say and do. That whole line, uh, look, I'm just an accountant, not a warrior. Yes. I don't understand grand emotions. For me, a defeat is when the books don't balance. Yes. Dishonor is when you lose to the galactic tax collectors. That's nowhere in the televised version, and it's lines like that that are just lovely. I, as an accountant with a little a, I found a lot to work with and enjoy. In here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a society divided between punters and bookies. I'm like, I guess I have to be a bookie, but I do <laughs> You really do. I, I, I would be much better at forensic accounting. I'm... Mm-hmm. Oh, the fact that Clout and the other guy, Clout doesn't say a word the entire time because... Only one has a communicator box. <laughs> right. And at one point, that's even lampshaded. He says, go find somebody. Oh, wait, silly me, of course, you can't. And you think, <laughs> why Why can't he? Oh, because he can't talk. I thought it was like budget constraints. They only have the one issued. I, I'd one say that's box. probably it. That's probably it. But the difficulty, and this is something that I know Fisher has done it because he wants to hide something. And I know the production did it for just that reason. But with the TARDIS being there, it makes no sense for the Famasi language not to be translated automatically. Mm, I did not think (laughs) that. The TARDIS is on vacation, too. (laughs) Yes, it is. I thought the TARDIS was in the next room. (laughs) Well, it doesn't matter. It should be able to translate for everybody because it it just doesn't. Should it emanate a sphere of translation? Uh, basically, yeah. Much, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not just for the TARDIS crew, or at least that seems to be the case, because we've had other stories where people are able to understand each other perfectly fine. You have to think about how much of a problem that causes when the Doctor leaves, and suddenly they can't speak each other's languages. But it doesn't translate the Famasi language, and it really should, but that's kind of a minor quibble, because if it weren't for that, you wouldn't have that grand reveal. Yeah. You kind of need it. I was contemplating my sort of future career trajectory options. I could <laughs> rule Earth as an accountant, as one of two professions. Um, was, was it wasn't all the Earthlings are accountants or like tea samovar service people, <laughs> like something similar to that. Or I could, in a few years, follow the Argolan social custom here. Let's see here. Uh, Once past childbearing age, they were required to avenge the slights and insults accumulated over 20 years. A woman could inherit a backlog of her hundred or more unfought duels, and she was expected to devote her declining years to fighting them. Those elderly females who survived tended to be scarred veterans of numberless combats and were used to frighten Argolan children instead of traditional boogeyman. I think I could do that one and... (laughs) Like, after my accounting career, but also available in all these time periods is high-class mortician. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I don't think any of these are mutually exclusive. I I think that it's a a false choice. I think that would be a symbiotic relationship, come to think of it. (laughs) 
you could be the mortician for all the people that you got revenge on. I lay them out and then I lay them out. <laughs> yes. And then I settle their estates. Yes, exactly. You've entered into the spirit of this book quite nicely. Well, but th- th- this line here, the figure of the holograph was soberly suited and wore an air of restrained gloom like a high-class mortician. This is the beginning of Chapter 3, a description of Brock, who... oh. I missed that that was Brock, the accountant. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. This, once again, is where uh, Fisher starts showing more restraint and stops, you know, spinning his fidget spinner quite so furiously. Yes. 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 (laughs) You can almost see the prose starting to calm down a bit. And then it starts getting really, really good. The first line of Chapter 5 is one of my favorite lines in the Doctor Who novelization ever. A bitter wind blew colder than charity. Mm. Yes. It's like, fuck, where have you been all our lives, David Fisher? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Dix sometimes gets that good, but only what, in his what early a linguistic time. sequence. Oh, sorry. Well, you know what I was saying. <laughs> Terrence Fisher, Dix. Jesus Christ, Dix. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I was trying to say. I wasn't saying what I normally say of a night when I'm feeling cold and lonely. No, I was saying <laughs> Terrence Dix, early in his career, sometimes gets to that level of prose. Oh, my God. Oh, Morty. <laughs> I love That's terrible. Romana seeing Hardin's, I guess, work, his experiments, and immediately being like, they should know this. This shouldn't work. It has to be a fake. But then she also is like, but they're close. There's there's something right about what's going on here. And her like partnering with him to figure it out and get it right. I love the way Fisher writes Romana. Because even when he does her as a damsel in distress, she's got a little more going for her. Mm-hmm. Even in Androids of Tara. Yeah. Here, though, she's not in distress. Not at all. The Doctor is the one who's in distress. And yeah, I know, there's a song called Doctor in Distress. I'm trying not to think about that right now. But the Doctor is the one who's the damsel in distress, which is a lovely reversal. Mm-hmm. It's great to see Romana having to come to his rescue for once. And also, the way he writes her... When they first arrive and Pangle's asking, is he a scientist? And Romanus nods. Experience had taught her to keep explanation down to a minimum. In any case, how did you explain the doctor? Even his fellow Time Lords preferred to keep him at arm's length. Yes. <laughs> and she knows that she could see the danger signals. The doctor is beginning to become interested in Argolis and its problems. Let's go back to the TARDIS before we land in real trouble. Yeah. It's just lovely the way he writes her. I wish he could write her all the time, but obviously not. Now, what is the story that we have read in the last year that also involved a time regression or de-aging chicken and egg experiment? City of Death. And that would have been James Goss. Yeah, and Romano was involved with that one too, come to think of it. And while doing the edits on this episode, I was just reminded that David Fisher wrote the treatment of the original story of City of Death, A Gamble with Time. So it's very possible that that whole thing with Romano working with Scaroth and Romano working with Harden in this story is just David Fisher reusing something that he'd already used before. Anyway, back to the discussion. I noticed that Fisher really likes his strong female characters. 
even in the stories where they come to a bad end, like Madame Lamia in Androids of Tara, he does like his strong characters. You've got Corella and uh, Adrasta. Then you've got the two possibly lesbian ladies in Stones of Blood. <laughs> and then you have Princess Strella, who's not terribly strong. And then you have Madame Lamia. And then you have Mina and Romana. And it's just like, ah, oh, this is fantastic. Why don't they do this more often? But you just described pretty often. Uh, yeah. Just a quick observation about just terminology in this book versus the episode as well is heresiarch. I have trouble pronouncing it. It is used throughout this book. Maybe other actors could not use it. That is never mentioned in the um, episode. No, because no one would be able to pronounce it for one thing. But for another, it... We project our weaknesses onto others. Yes. It really is the sort of term that describes what their ruling system is like, because it's hereditary monarchy. So it's one of those lovely words that never gets used on screen because that would be just showing off. She's not, I thought, a hereditary monarch. She married into it. She did, but then he was her consort, so that was bound to happen, wasn't it? Well, I I don't know. I don't know how monarchies work. (laughs) I have no idea. I'm not the resident Brit here structure was what is it uh hereditary monarchy that was patriarchal but matrilineal anyway okay now i'm just showing off um well so (laughs) i thought it was very interesting though the contrast between mina and pangol where mina was an officer on a warship she and the elderly argolans or the elder argolans have actually experienced this warrior society Mm -hmm. pangol is the only one who has not Mm mm-hmm but he fancies himself the most fearsome badass of all because yep. this is all just stories to him. Yes. And I thought it, but the, the, the other really nice telling line here is Mina asking the single question, Pangol, is this wise? Pangol ignored her because she has much more experience shedding blood, presumably, and thus is much more circumspect than he is. This is mm-hmm. all theory and history to him. And I really liked her contemplations about concern that he had been brought up essentially alone in a society of no other children other yes. than himself. He had not had to learn how to navigate society. Mm-hmm. And yes. he has a conception of reality consistent with that. I thought that was a really nice, subtle development. Yes, and... It's one of the few lines that's in the televised version that's not in the book. I don't know why, but when Mina comes out of the regenerator with baby Pangle, the first thing she says is, this time I shall have to raise him properly. (laughs) (laughs) And it really highlights that, that idea that, you know, there's a second chance here. I can actually do what I didn't do with this child before because I realized the mistakes that I made and I can see where he's going. I thought what worked is that she's not morally concerned he's too brutal. He just is going to pick fights he cannot win. With, mm-hmm. he, he's not strategic. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's an interesting idea to unpack in this and it's much more un- unpacked in the book, which is one of the many things I love about it. Obviously. I like the title, the last turn of phrase. 
the only begetter of New Argolis. Yes. To call back to us having mentioned a bad guy being reduced to a baby, that kind of echoes to RTD, Russell T. Davies' use of that idea in Boomtown. Yeah, the Celine, again, come to think of it, yeah, that when Margaret is regressed into an egg, there's that idea of redemption coming from rebirth. And again, it's the doctor who has a hand in making that happen. Except this time he's doing it by throwing a helmet at a screen, which I've never understood how that actually helps anything. But, And the book doesn't make it any clearer, but there you go. Speaking of which, come to think of it, the Doctor as an old man. Now, on screen, we get Tom Baker in old age makeup, which, strangely enough, looks very much like he does now except his hair on screen is longer and he's got a long beard and all that. And Tom Baker's never been one for growing a beard as the doctor. This is a tick of aging makeup that there's all, always this vision that in the future the person will stop grooming. And they will yes. just have kind of a wild, thin, coarse mane of whatever hair they have now, but they won't comb it or trim it in any way. Grooming their hair. Let's make that distinction because we are recording this in 2022. Yeah, we want to make sure of our terms here. What, whatever, <laughs> whatever joke I accidentally made, I still don't understand what I said, but I trust you. <laughs> That's just as well. That's perfectly fine. We get Tom Baker in old age makeup, essentially, and he plays it elderly, yes, but we don't get nearly the introspection that we do here from his point of view, where he's realizing, I can't remember what I was going to say. Oh my god, what was it I was trying to do? And in chapter 7, he sees himself, and we get the passage, he had caught sight of his own reflection. Good lord, he thought, that old man is me. It was almost like a regeneration, where quite suddenly you experienced a total physical change, a new body, in fact, and when you first looked in the mirror, you didn't recognize yourself. He regarded his white hair and wrinkled skin with distaste. I don't recognize you, old man, he thought. That is just amazing. Yeah. That is simply amazing. And we don't get it on screen. I like that it has several times we're told he's momentarily confused, he doesn't recognize someone, doesn't remember where he is, that it's not just the same mind in an older body, but he's experiencing that sort of slowing down slow degeneration. Yeah. Comparing the book versus the televised episode, you felt that frustration for the doctor or the frustration of the surrounding, Romana's frustration with him, a heck of a lot more for forgetting or tottering off, forgetting what he was doing, taking it upon himself to try to heal himself um, and stealing the components to do that. And Romana's frustration, you've got a lot more of that reading the book than seeing the episode as well. Yeah. Everything is expanded, and everything's expanded in a really great way. Even Romana has this moment of internal thought about what will she look like when she's 650? Will her hair go white? Will she be bald? It's like, this is just really good. I'm pulling back from what were going to be some of my closing comments, but we've caught upon them already was that Russell T. Davies was probably inspired by this episode in a lot of ways. We have the prematuring of the Doctor and the last of the Time Lords, uh, the wearing the human suits and Aliens of London, and, as it, like I've already mentioned, the villain reduced to a baby in Boomtown. 
this episode, I feel, probably really influenced or inspired Russell T. Davies in some of today's episodes. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. This episode would fit really well into the new series. The story would. I think it would still go a little slowly for modern audiences, especially that opening shot. But in terms of story, it would certainly fit. In terms of visuals, it would certainly fit. The book fits much more with the new adventures, so it's got its own goodness going. But you know what I'm going to transition to. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ask what we didn't like, if there was anything, because I do have a couple little minor quibbles, and you've already heard one of them. The randomizer. Yeah. The bit about that being taken out of the TARDIS, and then they talk about it being a way... It confused me. Like They say that without it, then the Black Guardian won't know where they're going, but I thought the point of the randomizer was that the Black Guardian wouldn't know where they were going. Yes. Romana says we won't know where we're going. And that's the point of the randomizer. They don't know where they're going. In fact, part of the thing is they're constantly bypassing the damn thing, so of course the Black Guardian would be able to track them pretty easily because they're never using it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been away for a while. The Black Guardian is still around? Yeah, he's told the Doctor he's going to kill him eventually for this, and they came up with this thing called the Randomizer that is basically just like a slot machine attached to the TARDIS console that randomizes the coordinates. Problem is, it doesn't work too terribly well because not only does it seem to pluck coordinates from all the previous places the Doctor has been to, including Scarrow, it is very easily bypassed and the Doctor and Romana are constantly doing so. In fact, she talks about that at the very beginning of this book. So there's a little bit of foreshadowing going on there and it's really nicely done. So the first few seasons, the Doctor is trying to pilot the TARDIS, but it keeps going to places that seem to him random. And now yes. he's trying to go random places, but he keeps piloting it, so basically little has changed? Yes. <laughs> now, the new series will retcon all of that. <laughs> when we finally get to meet the TARDIS in human form, she will make it clear to the Doctor that she may not always have taken him where he wanted to go, but she's always taken him where he needed to go. Yep. So there's every indication that even the randomizer wasn't working, and all those times that Hartnell was trying to pilot the TARDIS or Troughton or Pertwee or anybody was trying to pilot it, because the times when they really need to, they can pilot it perfectly fine. It's when they're doing something frivolous with the TARDIS that they generally (laughs) can't get it to go where they want it to go. So it's definitely, the TARDIS has a mind of her own. But it was not frivolous when they decided that they would go to a, a better party destination. Yeah, Because they exactly. needed to go. They, I like that. Yeah, they chose to go to Argolis, and obviously they needed to be there because this was going to happen. I've got a sentence I specifically need an English professor to unpack for me. Okay, I, I think I have just enough brain power left after my four classes today to do exactly that. The tachyon is the Cinderella of subatomic particles. Uh, now see, I'm not sure what that means either, <laughs> because I think you don't need an English professor. I think you need a physicist. I'm not sure if I don't understand tachyons. Actually, I know I don't understand tachyons. Maybe I don't understand Cinderella, though. 
a scientific freak you can prove its existence but for well over a century no one has found any use for it i don't think that usually describes cinderella i don't think so either i'm not sure if he meant that cinderella is two different people at the same time yeah but even that's kind of I can't yeah. figure out if it's just over my head or it's a joke like, what is it, something he said, something like, don't cross your bridges until they're hatched? Well, that's deliberate. Yeah, that one actually works But I thought maybe, well. maybe this one is deliberate and I'm just not sophisticated enough to get it. I have no idea what it means either. That line does not exist in any form in the televised version. As a metaphor, it doesn't quite work. And if it does work, I hope someone listening will please explain it to us to because, us rubes. to us rubes because none of us are physicists so yeah other things we didn't like if anything <laughs> we're really having to reach with this one aren't we sorry we like the book that's fine <laughs> That's fine. It's such a rarity on the show, according to some. I have to admit that the phrase roaring with laughter gets overused for a bit, but then I think Fisher realizes what he's doing and pulls back from it. He finally has Mina roaring with laughter, and if you've seen her on screen, Mina is not the sort to roar with laughter. I think I just screened that out entirely. It happens like three Mm. times. Oh, that's actually something I like. He introduces a Karen. Oh, yes. The Terran (laughs) Nationalist. The Terran Karen, yes. (laughs) Yes, the one who says, well, there can't be Argyll in science because we developed the tachyon on Earth. Let me speak to your manager. Yeah, it's not that big. Seven (laughs) X's. Yes. (laughs) But the the nice line in here, something that's mentioned a couple of times, but referenced a couple of times before, she says, actually, this is a line before Romana is observing Pangol and saying, how you hate all these visitors to your planet. And indeed, he does. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's it's mentioned several times that this is this is not who the Argolans see themselves as. They are not hoteliers. No, and that not enough is made of that in the televised version. So I'm so glad he does that. I thought it made sense as a reason that the other surviving Argolans, who all like Mina, should have a much better sensibility for whether or not Pangol's plan can be successful. Mm-hmm. Seem to generally go along with it because, eh, it's something better to do. Yeah, because they're tired of peace. Yeah. And they're tired of having to constantly email people on TripAdvisor to try to get them to pull their ratings up. Because <laughs> <laughs> apparently that's what hoteliers do. Easier to fight a war than to maintain a leisure hive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, and I will say it's a little on the nose that the agents of the Fomasi government are the Fomasi Bureau of Investigation. Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. Can you imagine the sort of complaints they must get? The Fomasi government is hearing from people from the Argolans saying, this was an unprecedented breaking into the leisure hive. You took oh things that belong to us and we want them back. <laughs> Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I had to go there. I had to. It's been that kind of day. I have similar notes, but I decided to kind of edit them out to keep the politics out. (laughs) They're certainly there. I mean, God, it's kind of timeless in that way, to be honest. I appreciate the lovingly detailed description of the four-step scam. The what? 
of, 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 of all the West Lodge acquires properties. Oh, yes, yes, yes. This is exactly the sort of dirty pool that a Chicago land developer would play. Oh, God, oh, yeah. is it ever. And again, we don't get that much explanation for it on screen, so that's another good addition. There's very little that's unlikable, but... Purchase by default. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, shall we go to Goodreads then? Sashay on over. I think so. Okay. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of this book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it here before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.42, which is a bit lower than I thought it would be. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives this three stars and says, I'm not a fan of Fisher's prose, but since I read this immediately after the official novelization of Shada, it felt as refreshingly straightforward as Terrence Dick's book, a compliment I'm sure Fisher wouldn't have appreciated. I was going to say, quite the compliment, left-handed compliment. Yes. Not that this book was without problems. As usual, Fisher seemed to be showing off his vocabulary which didn't bother me too much this time until the end of the book when he didn't appear to know the meaning of random. When the doctor decides to leave the randomizer on Argolis, Roman is aghast because according to Fisher, they wouldn't know where they were going and the doctor agrees, saying that in that case, neither would the Black Guardian except that that was the whole point of the randomizer was that nobody would know where they were going. Their destination would be random, hence the name randomizer. The rest of the book isn't terrible, but it has to compete with the screen version, the production values for which are, for the most part, a vast improvement on what had been seen in recent years. This is only partly due to the new producer, John Nathan Turner, and his determination to make the show look more expensive than it really was, but mostly due to the director, Lovett Bickford, overspending, so this story was nearly as expensive as it looks. The old makeup on Tom Baker is particularly good even now. For a television show in 1980, even with the overspend, it is astonishing. Tom Baker's actual appearance now at 88 is not as convincing. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Oh, my lord. I love the opening scene on TV, a slow panning shot showing Beach Hut after Beach Hut. Whatever Fisher chose to do with the scene would have been a disappointment. A simple description would have been dull. Here's a beach hut and another one and another one. Missing it out altogether would have been too abrupt. While I don't much like the new characters, I don't think Fisher had a lot of options. There are a few scenes that are improved in the book. The effect of the apparent dismemberment of Pangol and later the Doctor wasn't very convincing when the story was first broadcast. And the statuary described in the book as of Argolan war heroes on screen look like giant jelly babies. (laughs) <laughs> they really do. They look like candies. Very bellicose candies. Yes. Then there's the perennial problem of monsters being larger than their human disguises, a solution for which wouldn't be found until 2005 and the introduction of flatulence to the show. Such scenes are almost always better in prose. Michael, in our Goodreads group, gives it three and a half stars and says, Back in my teenage days, a friend and I channeled our inner Beavis and Butthead on a field trip bus ride by noting that a character in this book was named Harden, and at one point, if I recall correctly, he unexpectedly arrived. We were amused for endless hours, which says more about me than this adaptation. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. Before smartphones could entertain ourselves for far longer periods of time with far less material on long bus rides. Exactly. This story is an odd blend of two styles, Fisher's irreverence married with Christopher H. Midbead's scientific realism, and yet for this fan, that blend works fairly well. Even extended to the printed page, Fisher does a nice job expanding the on-screen stuff a bit, and the story never really sags. I visited it again a few years ago when the audiobook came out, and I still like it. I know it's not popular among some corners of fandom to love it, but this fan is a fan. And finally... Jay, in our Goodreads group, did not give it a rating and says Fisher's novelization does serve to bring back some much needed levity into a more serious, at points technobabbly, take a shot every time the words tachyon or tachyonics appear, and until the last episode, a pretty meandering script focusing on Argyll and politics and business practices. The second chapter, the alien background exposition chapter with the most well-known chivalrously fought duel ending in a tie because both fighters killed themselves trying to be on equal standing with each other, for example. The opening chapters add in new characters to provide Greek chorus-like commentary, such as the workers at the beach who decide to take advantage of Japanese tourists and the journalists giving a different perspective over Argolis. Both versions of the story, the TV episodes and the novelization, serve it in different ways. Harden is a sympathetic character on screen, wanting to help but lacking the means, but gets more depth in this on the page. One of the few genuinely nice characters among the guest cast, Ramona gets a good shake too, being the one to suggest going to Argolis and helping Harden with his tachyon experiments. Oh, that was one other thing I didn't like. Harden doesn't get any resolution in either version. He gets the baby. He doesn't get the girl. It's kind of weird. So, <laughs> Jennifer, out of five stars, what would you give this book? I'll probably go with the middle road of being a 3.4, 3.5. As much as I enjoyed it, I feel that both the written and the televised version um, make each other more whole. I did find myself liking the televised version more. Maybe because there were so many changes going on then, I, mean, I tend to be a nostalgic sort. Maybe it was subconscious because I didn't realize it until I started studying this episode. But I didn't have those warm fuzzies that I usually feel when I'm reading one of the other ones I've read in the past. And uh, it was just kind of a, a cold read for me. And maybe that's just things going on currently. It, it was not one of the most exciting reads for me. Okay. And Allison, out of five stars, what would you give this? Well... I think I failed to mention earlier that I was amused that he slipped in an Oliver Twist reference, The Law is an Ass. Oh, yes, he did. So, got at least a good another quarter star for that. I'm going to go three stars, which for me, remember, is high praise because I'm the mean one. Yes. Mm -hmm. I certainly enjoyed reading it a lot. I will not remember it tomorrow. (laughs) So, the only negative thing I have is that I don't think anything will stick. If anything (laughs) sticks, it's going to be the characterization of Pangol as the littlest fascist, which I actually thought was quite engaging. <laughs> All right. It's right, though. It's so right. Yep. And Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? <laughs> Earlier, I was thinking about giving it a three, but after our discussion, I'm going to bump it up to 3.5. Kind of like Jennifer, the story didn't, like, draw me in. It's not, like, the best thing, but I think having read a lot of David Fisher recently... His prose really kind of sparkles for me. I did like a lot of the backgrounds we get and the characterizations, you know. 
he's having fun with it, but not going completely overboard. So I'm glad that, that yeah, we, we read the, the two newer novelizations and then this one because it kind of feels like a good place to end with him. Because is there any more David Fisher? No. This is the last so, David Fisher we'll get. So it feels appropriate. So, yeah, I'd give it a 3.5. Has he passed on? Yeah, he's passed on, and there aren't any more Doctor Who scripts of his. Mm. So this is the last we will be doing of him. And as for me, I'm going to probably surprise everybody and give it a 4, because I am really just in love with this book. I loved Stones of Blood, and I love this one for the same reasons that the expansions that are here are all good expansions. The characters are better drawn. And in this particular case, even though I kind of feel the same way as Jennifer does, that when you're doing a novelization, it should reflect the original story as much as possible. All bets are off if you are the screenwriter who did it in the first place, because the novelized version always strikes me as that screenwriter's best version of their own story. If he's not doing it as well as he should, like Androids of Tara, then that tells you that the original story wasn't all that good. Creature from the Pit, same problem. He's got to polish a turd with that one because nobody thinks of Creature from the Pit as their favorite televised Doctor Who story. Whereas this one, I like the Leisure Hive, but like a lot of this season coming up, it feels very sterile compared to Doctor Who stories from the past, probably because the humor's missing. Here, the humor's back, and it's all quite lovely. So, yeah, I would give this uh, four stars. Someone is definitely going to email and tell you the creature from the pit is hands down their favorite story. You know, they probably will, and they'll probably say in that email to me, oh, I'm going to stop listening to your podcast now, you denigrated creature from the pit. It's like, oh. And you'll have lost the whole creature from the pit sector of the listening audience. Yeah, well, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out then. Anyway. In the law. Don't let the door hit you in the law. Exactly. So, thank you all. Mm -hmm. All right. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. And Jennifer, thank you for joining us for this one. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Mm Mm-hmm. Next time, we will continue with Tom Baker's final season as we look at Terrence Dick's novelization of Begloss. Yep, we're getting back into the Dicks again pretty quickly. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, Email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.